Before we get to today's podcast, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Space Wolf. Have you heard about Space Wolf? South Florida's hottest new startup that gives you and anyone you know a way to make extra cash by wearing a branded t-shirt, wrapping it out in your car, or even texting your friends about a local business. Over thousands of South Floridians have already been paid. See how much you can make at SpaceWolf.com. That's SpaceWolf, S-P-A-C-E-W-O-L-F-F. That's two F's, SpaceWolf.com. And now, on with today's show. Welcome to yet another edition of the Five Reasons Podcast, but this is not just another edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. This is the post-Game 2 episode of the pod, so you can enjoy, you can revel in a Miami Heat victory away from home in Game Number 2 of their first-round playoff series over the Philadelphia 76ers. And most importantly, before I get more Camby gifts... Dwayne Wade turns in an insane performance, a remarkable performance, a single-handedly won-the-game performance, 28 points in less than 26 minutes, 11 of 16, and most importantly, and let's just go ahead and get started, Ethan. The first Mm -hmm. thing we're just, the section is Dwayne Wade, right? We might as well make him all five sections. We're going to talk about other things, but this win does not happen without him. I honestly thought that until he entered the game, with the Sixers cutting the lead down to two late in that fourth quarter, until he comes into the game, I thought the Sixers were going to win the game. I thought they were going to finish the comeback, and you just saw the calm and the composure that the Miami Heat played with, that he played with, and just saying, nope, we're winning this. And his influence single-handedly changed what was a pretty sizable momentum over the course of that fourth quarter. His re-entry into the game basically ended it. How many times have we done this over the past 15 years? I, I feel like this is just, it's a broken record with Dwayne where every time you think he's done, he turns in a performance like this. And, you know, to do it at age 36, and I was tracking the numbers during the game. I mean, just to put this into some perspective, Chris, this was a number that I unearthed tonight. If you look historically in NBA playoff history and look at players coming off the bench, age 36, or older, Dwayne Wade scored more points than all but two tonight with his 28 points. Jamal Crawford once got 32 points in a game at age 36. Eddie Johnson scored 31 at age 38 off the bench. Those are the only two bench performances for a guy Dwayne Wade's age or older that were better than the one we saw tonight. And it wasn't just the points, Chris. 28 points in 26 minutes, but the sequence late in the game. The pass to James Johnson, the steal, and then the offensive rebound that after another pass by James Johnson led to the baseline jumper by Goran Dragic, which basically put this thing away. So Dwayne did everything that you needed to do late in that game, and the biggest thing that he did was he calmed the team down because, as you said, this game was getting away from them. They were up just two. You could feel Philadelphia's momentum. It looked like a lot of the players in the Heat really didn't know where to go or what to do in that situation. But Dwayne has been in so many of these situations, and it brings back so many memories for me for having been at so many of these playoff games for Dwayne. And I think back to the first playoff game that he ever played in, and there's a picture as you go up the steps to gate four at the arena, and you can see me sitting with my dorky glasses behind the baseline (laughs) and my old laptop, which uh, there's no chance that that would ever work these days anymore watching as Dwayne Wade dribbles through the lane and makes that runner against New Orleans 
in his first ever playoff game. And here we are 15 years later, nearly 180 playoff games later for Dwayne to the point that he's passed Larry Bird now in playoff scoring and he's still doing things like this and he's doing it in that jersey. What were the odds in the summer of 2016 that we would ever see A, Dwayne Wade do this in a playoff game again and B, do it for the Miami Heat? So look, before we move on to everything else that happened tonight, this is just another special moment in a career of special moments for him. And if this Heat playoff run ends in the first round, or if, even if they get to the second round and it ends, there will be something to remember from this postseason. And I'm not sure, as we were looking at this Heat team halfway through the year before they traded for Dwayne, that we thought that they would have any kind of a moment like this during this particular postseason going into next season. So it's really, really special. I will say, though, he did have a moment last year. I thought the two games that Chicago played against Boston when they won games one and two before Rondo got hurt, I thought Dwayne Wade was brilliant in those games and important to them winning. And Gabrielle Union tweeted this tonight. And as much as, you know, obviously my inclination is to push back where she goes, hold on, everyone says that he was dialing it back or that this is a vintage performance. And she goes, no, he's been doing this. And she's absolutely bang on. When you consider that he was good in important playoff games last year with Chicago and nearly led the Bulls on their way to an 8-1 upset before one of their most important guys got hurt. They might have finished that off if Rondo stays healthy. And then 2016 has the purple shirt guy moment and a playoff series victory over Charlotte. Even into the years where, and and this is the crazy thing for me about it, Ethan, is that I think the inclination has been to write him off, and not just to write him off, but that he's been written off. Like, this season, when he's a role guy who's barely playing for Cleveland and gets traded for a protected 2024 second-round pick, people have been basically saying he is done for five years. If you go back to that 2013-14 season, and you were there for every night of this, when we didn't know what he was going to play. We don't know he was going to play, much mm-hmm. less deliver game-impactful winning performances in the postseason. Going back five years, you can say, eh, it seems like the end is near for Dwayne Wade, and yet every postseason, he summons something up. And it's the ultimate kind of sign against taking the regular season overly seriously, because you saw it with him last year and the year before, he just doesn't get up for the regular season. And he goes through bad habits and doesn't try hard. Because, by the way, it wasn't just an offense. It was on both ends of the floor. Mike Fratello pointing out one of the greatest guards ever in terms of steals and blocks got important once tonight. Put in important defensive efforts was not a liability on that end of the floor. His defending, as it was, by the way, in that 2016 run for Miami, was really important, as it was last year for Chicago when they were on their way to making that run. I also want to make another point here you mentioned in terms of guys 36 or older coming off the bench and scoring like he did just guys 36 or older period there's only 14 other guys in the history of the league that have scored 28 or more points after the age of 36 and in a playoff game and so it's been done 54 times for tonight tonight being the 55th in what I call the basketball reference era which is since 1964 so could have happened before then but there's no way of knowing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did it 29 times and so Kareem (laughs) is really the one who sort of carries the baton for old basketball players getting it done but what Dwayne Wade did tonight was remarkable in that it was an incredible performance but also it won them the game because it, it was we talked about the fourth quarter coming in sealing the victory but they don't build that lead they don't come back from what looked like a pretty dire situation because the first quarter looked like 
the last game's first, the last game's third quarter, I should say, when the Sixers got off to the lead, they were up nine, and even though the Sixers were missing shots, you figure, oh, once the shots go in, this is going to be ball game, and Dwayne Wade comes in, and slowly but surely, the Heat gain the lead, and all of a sudden, it's double digits by half. That doesn't happen without Dwayne Wade coming in and exerting the calming influence. If we're going to sort of break from the narrative for just a moment and talk about the basketball, I would say the most important thing he did was make everything make sense from an offensive point of view in terms of where everyone's going to be occasionally just need an alpha dog that's going to step in and organize everything but also having that playoff experience of knowing how to manipulate a game and Eric Spolster's been saying it and he knows it the Heat need to slow the game down a little bit and Dwayne Wade knows exactly how to do that in a way and we talked about playoff experience having a role to play in this series and I kept saying well Dwayne Wade's the only one that has it yeah he's the only one that has it and he exerted it tonight particularly in that first half and if you look at the plus minus number and we've talked about the fact that since Dwayne's come back he's been a minus player right like for all the the hoopla about Dwayne coming back and the great moment against Philadelphia where he scores the 27 points in the regular season makes the last minute shot Look, they only averaged uh, 101 points per 100 possessions with Dwayne on the floor since he came back this season. But you look at the numbers tonight. He was plus 16, by far the best on the Heat. Dragic was uh, was plus 11. Olenek was plus 11. So they made their two runs in this game. The two critical runs that they needed to win this game were with Dwayne on the floor. You mentioned the second quarter and how critical that was. And you're right. It was getting away from them there in the first quarter because a lot of the same things were happening with the starting lineup that happened in game one. And that's something we're going to address here over the course of the pod. But you get a win tonight, but you still need to look at that starting lineup because the starting lineup did not play particularly well again in this game. Should Wade start though, for you? Should Wade start? Well, no. I would say no because I don't know that it's necessary for them to do that if he's going to be able to get 27, 28 minutes anyway, right? If he can use him off the bench, I would still – look, I talked before this game. We had this on the previous pod. You said you would start – Olenek over Whiteside. I think after tonight, you could certainly make a case for that again. I said you start Ellington over Tyler Johnson. What Tyler made, what did he make? One shot tonight. He was one of four Mm -hmm. from the field for five points. He was a plus three. Ellington was not great either, but he did make three threes off the bench. He was three of ten overall and a minus ten. I would still look at altering the starting lineup without necessarily putting Dwayne in it, although I will say this. Whiteside perked up. The only time that, that Hassan really played well tonight was when he was out there with Dwayne. So we had a few people who made that argument on Twitter to us after we put up the previous pod that maybe they just need to get Dwayne out there with Hassan to get Hassan more comfortable because we know Dwayne's the one guy who knows how to at least get Hassan in some comfortable situations offensively. And it happened a couple of times tonight. So maybe Spolster does look at it, but I still think you're okay keeping Dwayne off the bench and having him be the guy who changes sort of the barometer when he comes in the game and slows down the pace if necessary. Now, the thing is, Chris, he took a lot of those shots you hate him taking, <laughs> you yes. know, tonight. He At just a certain point, them. though, he's seven for seven. I mean, there isn't really a bad. I mean, the only one that I was like, all right, come on, Dwayne, was when he stepped into the three in transition. That was the only one where I didn't think he was going in. And if and if I did, I was like, all right, he's going to score 60 tonight. But the, the rest of them are just, it, they're Dwayne shots. And in the regular season, they're low percentage. In the regular season, they're 33%. But in games like this, all bets are off. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and you're, I mean, there were a lot of them. I'm, I'm waiting for the shot chart to come up. It hasn't come up yet on the NBA stats site yet, but I'm curious to look at it to see sort of what side of the floor, because usually he's more comfortable on the left side of the floor, but he did a lot of his and you are correct, sir. tonight from the right side. Is and you are right? correct. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the shot chart just came up. If you look at the number, and so he only made one jump shot. It was just in front of the three-point line from the right side of the floor. In terms of the jumpers, in terms of the ones that are a little bit further away from the basket, he was, let's see, seven of nine from that left side of the floor. And as you kind of get deeper and deeper, the, the green circles start to come up more and more. Yeah, and that's his spot. And you go back to final series against San Antonio and remember him wearing that spot out when the Spurs kept giving him that look. So, look, when he's making that shot, he starts to feel more comfortable. Then he jacks up the three, as you mentioned, which, you know, you can clearly tell that that was a heat check there. But the thing I go beyond the scoring tonight and the scoring, obviously, we talk about it in, in historical context. And it was a historical night in that sense. But it was the late sequence to me when it wasn't about points at all. It was the steal. It was the pass and it was the rebound. And those three things within about a 60 to 90 second span ended the game, essentially, with him doing those things. And some of the concerns that you have about Dwayne with this group didn't really come into play. Like we always talk about, you know, Dwayne and Dragic and how that's going to work down the stretch of a game. It never really and, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, Ethan, when, when the whole thing is going to hell, when it, there's three minutes left to play in the game and you bring in a Hall of Famer all-time legend, if he doesn't get along with the point guard, it doesn't matter at that point. Like, it just matters that you have someone that you can throw on the floor that is going to exert his will on the game, and he'd only have one player who can do that, and it's still Dwayne Wade. And as much as that is kind of disappointing in the two years since he left that no one emerged, no one's emerged. And so you just have to play the you have to play the hand that you're dealt. Yeah, I was making that case during the game on Twitter on our account, Five Reasons Sports, that, you know, it's great that Dwayne can still do this. But you kind of want to get to the point where one of your third or fourth year players is the guy who's stepping forward here. We saw a stretch, and we're going to touch on this a little bit. Uh, we saw a stretch from Josh Richardson where he was more aggressive. And then again, I thought that Justice Winslow's physicality throughout the game on the defensive end and just the attitude that he played with was critical. But you're not counting on either of those guys to be your go-to player down the stretch. In fact, Winslow wasn't even on the floor for most of that. Um, and James Johnson was was the guy who was really terrific tonight, and, and particularly down the stretch of the game, and he ended up 7-7. Seven of seven. But it's not going to be James Johnson either. It's going to be Dwayne. Wayne uh, when they need it in those situations because he's been through so many of them and that's why even when he wasn't playing as much late in the season where Spolster wasn't even I think the last two clutch games of the year Spolster didn't play him um, down the down the uh, down the stretch of those games and now we see in the playoffs that clearly he was going to come back on the floor to finish this thing and he did tonight. All right, so believe it or not, we actually have other things to talk about besides Dwayne Wade. Before that, let's hear a word from Miami Heat Beat. And although they did not tape a podcast, they're not taping one at the same time as we are after a game two, I imagine if it did, it would just sound like grunting sounds. So we might as well tell you about something about them in which they would sound coherent. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Heat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Giancarlo Navas. And with me today, Heat Twitter president, Alf. He contributed more to black-on-black crime than gangster rap trash tweeter jack alfonso if they want to go out into the woods and torture small woodland creatures who am i to judge photoshopper and anime lover brass jazz seriously there's a scene where he's like oh call me big bro and then they start making out our very own hot take harry Dwayne wade deserves everything that's happened to him professional screw up alex toledo this is the most watched conversation i've ever heard statistician and photoshopper christian hernandez 
I'm tell fine. you, man, it is hard to beat Bobby Flay. Heat beat insider Lefty Leif. You can look at me right now, dog. Look at me in my face. You're going to tell me that he went back there for David Griffin. Statistician and pun master Nikias Duncan. That's a vamp? Are you kidding? And finally, our producer and co-founder, Brian Goy. Hey, it's Mark Hockman. That was the Heat Beat staff now on the Five Reasons Podcast Network. You can check us out at MiamiHeatBeat.com or at MIHeatBeat on Twitter for your updates, live tweets, articles, you name it, it'll be there. All right, so the next thing we have to cover, Ethan, point number two is the way that the Miami Heat defended in this game. And I thought, and we talked about it in the kind of game one recap slash game two preview, I thought that the Miami Heat were going to be much more prepared for the Sixers' actions tonight and that they were going to come out with the requisite defensive adjustments that it was going to take in order to slow down their offense a little bit, and they delivered. I mean, you look at the three-point shooting on the night, it ends up seven for 35, and it's not. I don't think they missed a ton of open ones. I think they were just forced into difficult actions, and the Miami Heat were awesome. On it defensively. You saw Winslow with incredible defensive possessions. You saw Richardson blocking the shot of J.J. Redick. You saw J.J. Redick forced into a shot clock violation. I thought J.J. Redick was awful tonight, and that was a product of all of the machinery that it takes to get those guys shots, Ilyasova and Saric and Redick and even and Bellinelli. And even when those guys weren't getting anything going, they were forcing it up anyway. Those guys are going to take their threes. And the Miami Heat did a brilliant job of putting pressure on them. And then, and this is the point that you want to get to, it all starts with the distribution from Ben Simmons. Heat defenders were in his jersey tonight. Yeah, they were. And even though Simmons put up good numbers, and I feel like Simmons is one of those guys, it's, it's getting like LeBron here, where he can have sort of a so-so game, and you look up and he still got close to a triple-double, right? So, I mean, you look at his overall numbers tonight. He ended up with 24 points, 8 rebounds, 8 assists on 10 of 17 shooting, and yet he didn't have the overall impact that he had in game one. And they played him differently tonight. You know, we talked before this series about how they were going to handle him. Were you going to play him like teams used to play LeBron earlier in his career and the Spurs continue to play him where you back off of him because you're so afraid of him as a driver, as a finisher, that you essentially give him the jumper. But the problem with that in game one, and we anticipated this a little bit too, was that if you do that with Ben Simmons, you give him sort of a clear lane in terms of his eyesight as a passer and you just give him too much of a running start and that's what happened in game one where what was happening was they were backing off of him and he was essentially getting in the lane and that was forcing a collapse and then you had the rotations and then you ended up with open threes and it was open three after open three during that game this game not only were they aggressive with him a half court they picked him up full court Frequently, they made him work to sort of get up the the full 94 in terms of getting from the backcourt up to the front court. And when they did that with multiple guys, I mean, it was James Johnson, it was Justice Winslow, and it was Josh Richardson, and they rotated these three guys. And again, this is why when we talked about the Heat's matchup with Philly, I likened it to what they might do against LeBron if they played Cleveland in a playoff series, which is that they do have three guys. You can talk about the Heat's limitations in a lot of different areas, but they do have three guys who are committed physical defenders on the wing. And you can even say four if Magruder was playing more, and he got a few minutes tonight. But the three primary guys, again, with James Johnson and with Winslow and with Richardson, 
And those guys, I thought, did an excellent job on Simmons, getting him out of his comfort zone for most of the game and not allowing him to sort of break down the defense and then create openings for guys to make threes. And we saw that with the three-point shooting. And and we talked about the five three-point shooters on Philadelphia, the five guys that you worry about the most. Ilyasova, Saric, Covington, Redick, and Bellinelli. In game one, those guys were 17 of 27 from three. Tonight, Chris, they made seven of them, those guys, but they also took them 40, I, th- I think it was 42 attempts. 36 and, attempts. 30, 36 attempts. They, they, all, the, those five guys took all of Philly's three-point attempts, and on the night, Philly finished 19% from three. Okay, so they ended, yeah, they ended up uh, seven of 36 from three overall. So, so basically what they did was they limited the open looks for those guys by pressuring Simmons a little bit more. I'm sure Philadelphia will make an adjustment to that. But of the three guys, the one I want to focus on the most defensively is Winslow because we've seen him be capable of this defensively. It started with him as a rookie where they started putting him on the best offensive player night after night after night. And some nights he'd get killed. Okay. Like I remember a night that LeBron started six of six against him up in Cleveland. That was a bit of an education, but then there were other nights and I can remember one against Paul George in particular where he made it really uncomfortable for a star on the other team. And that's what he did tonight. And that attitude that he showed, okay, where he basically cursed. I for, for I forgot what, what was it he said, uh, Chris? Uh, he called him a b****. So, there you go. Uh, so, so that is that, that is what Winslow was uh, trash talking. He made it pretty clear to Ben Simmons that he wasn't going to take any crap from him. When Ben Simmons pushed off against him after Winslow hounded him all the way down the floor from the backcourt up to the frontcourt. And so I think what we saw from Winslow tonight is when he's that aggressive defensively, he has the frame to guard guys, and he's strong enough to guard guys who may even be a little bit bigger than him, and he did that against Simmons tonight, and so I thought he was terrific, and then we saw that translate to him being at times a little bit more aggressive on the offensive end, even though it didn't translate to points. He ended up only one of five for two points, but I thought his overall game for a guy who ended up with two points, three rebounds, and and no assists was really, really good tonight, and I thought that was a big factor. I love playoff basketball, man. To me, the the matchups and the counter matchups. You saw early in the game, Philly throw the we're just going to back off a James Johnson tactic. And it kind of worked in the same way that the Ben Simmons backing off tactic works is that you give him a runway to go towards the rim. And James Johnson took it a couple of times. He also very early in the game, his second possession, stepped into a wide open three and drained it. And so there is a certain amount of, I think you engage someone's professional pride to where if they even have a little bit of skill, they're going to step up and make the shot in your face because you're sort of daring them to beat you and any professional competitor is going to want to be able to do that. And then you saw in the fourth quarter too, Philly start to throw the traps out of Dwayne Wade on the pick and roll. Like everything was tried tonight on both ends. But to me, the most important thing, if we're talking about the heat from a defensive point of view, is that they just did it better. They were ready. They were switched on. They knew every movement. They ran around every screen and it looked exhausting. And and you could see even from a Philly point of view, right? So Pellinelli's running around in circles, running around in circles, Reddick in circles and circles and circles around screens and screens and screens. 
And then when they would go to lift for the three, they had no lift. How many times did you see Philly shooters tonight land awkwardly because they just didn't have the lift to get off the shot that they wanted to, and their legs are spread out, or they're leaning back, and it was just this awkward delivery that I still expected to go in every time, but it clearly affected... There, there was very little in-rhythm shooting from Philly tonight, and it's only by virtue of the Heat being more prepared, trying harder, and Eric Spolster having them ready to go for this offense and sort of experiencing it once, and now we're going to have to see if Philly has an answer in this upcoming Game 3 on Thursday night. And a lot of the things that Spolster says we make fun of, right? Like some of them sound a little bit hokey, some of the spoisms and all that stuff. We, we talk all the time on the pod about his sort of do-it-harder thing right yeah. but that's basically what happened tonight yes, 100%. I mean, if, if you look at the way that they played they were just as you mentioned they were all so physical I mean Whiteside's another story we're going to get to that here in a second yes. but if you look at the guys who played particularly on the wing and you mentioned it like even Dwayne defensively got into it but the three primary guys Richardson James Johnson and Winslow they were out there against everybody being physical, getting up in their jersey. And we saw a lot of the fouls early in the game, right? Like, that was the big complaint from the fans. Yeah, you yeah. looked on Twitter, uh, what was it, 8 nothing at one point in terms of the foul calls. Um, but even though the Heat were getting a lot of fouls called against them and the fans didn't like it very much, and we can talk about whether it's ever smart to have Scott Foster and Tony Brothers on the same crew. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tony uh, Brothers, man, he is uh, dreadful. Uh, oh, God. I, it's, uh, so many games I covered with him. It's and, just and, and, like, and in game one uh, on the ESPN feed, they had Mark... Mark Jones read a thing, and I wonder if this sort of went on around all the NBA playoff games. I didn't pay attention, but he they had him read this thing that was the NBA has selected the 36 best officials based off of our grading system, and as the rounds go on, the pool of referees will go shorter and shorter depending on the video review, and uh, like they basically gave the league spiel on here's what we're doing to pick our officials so that they're good, and that Tony Brothers makes the cut every time. I don't know what the grading system is, but he clearly must be good enough in their judgment. But I, every time I see him, uh, my eyes roll. But, but I, I do want to sort of make one more point, and then we can move on to Whiteside. Brett Brown, in his post-third quarter interview, there's actually been a fair amount of wired for sound and in-quarter interviews that I found interesting. I generally find Brett Brown to be honest and available to provide these answers. And so uh, he was asked by the sideline reporter for TNT about uh, their offense and what they can do, and he just said that defensively they've been very very physical and that they've driven us out of stuff and that he admired their aggressiveness. Now, Mike Fratello pointed this out very soon thereafter that him saying he admired their aggressiveness is one way of saying, yeah, we got all these calls in the first quarter because they were fouling us and they never stopped fouling us. And the referees just decided at a certain point that we're going to keep calling the fouls. And so I think it'll end up becoming an officiating argument, but I think that physicality and putting the onus on the referee, foul us out, keep calling the fouls. And I don't think they were ever going to, particularly in a playoff game. And the heat ended up being the beneficiary of all this extra contact. All right, let's move to Hassan Whiteside now in point number three. But before we do, let's hear a word from the Balls cast. This week on the Balls cast, former Marlins president and current friend of the show, David Sampson, joins us to tell us how he dealt with a fan yelling fuck you at him with a little kid next to them. Slim and I and only Slim and I talk heat sixers, and we get properly baked talking about Rick Scott running for the Senate. Because how the hell else are we supposed to deal with the unending xenophobic fascist tyranny hellscape we're all currently living in? That plus so much more on this week's Balls Cast. Balls Cast.
The Hassan Whiteside problem, Ethan, it was a big topic of conversation after game number one. I don't think it was terribly solved in the game number two. You look at minutes played, Hassan Whiteside only finished with 15 minutes. That is eighth most on the Heat roster. Both he and Tyler Johnson start and get 15 minutes or less. And so how do you feel in general that Whiteside's minutes went? I would say just sort of as... This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, Had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash, Miami Heat. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From an optimistic point of view, that given that he was a plus one, it wasn't a disaster. They survived. And with the Sixers starting the game like they started the third quarter with Ilyasova at center and Amir Johnson off the bench, the Heat survived that opening run. And I feel like that's... From my point of view, what I was expecting, were you expecting more? I thought he was a little better tonight. He was more engaged um, at the start of this game than he was in game one. And I think he would have played more if he hadn't picked up that third sort of crazy foul <laughs> where, yeah. where you know, he made the foul on the inbounds um, well, he and Winslow. from the backcourt. Well, he and Winslow with the 93 feet from the basket fouls. Well, Justice, to, to, to put ha- yourself just, in foul ju- trouble. Justice has too many of those. Yeah. Uh, we, we've talked about those before. But, but the thing about that white side foul was – I mean, he was actually competing, right? Like he was mm-hmm. trying to make a play in the backcourt. Not the smartest move, but at least he was trying. So I'll give him that. But look, when they started Ilyasova, we talked about this uh, prior to game two. I did not think Eric Spolster would make a change to his starting lineup. It's just not what he does. Uh, he tends to wait at least a game or two more to see how things play out a little bit. And I do feel like he is saving Whiteside for Embiid. And he wants to keep him in this mentally and so he was not going to bench him at the start of the game again assuming that if things didn't go particularly well he would go to Olenek sooner so you could say that Whiteside picking up the third foul kind of made things easier on Eric right it it sort of took the decision out of Eric's hands a little bit because he wasn't going to play him the rest of the second quarter 
with the three fouls. And then to start the second half, they didn't start the second half particularly well after they had that 34 to 13 second quarter. So he wasn't going to stay with Hassan all that long after that. But you mentioned it. He was a plus one tonight. You look at the starting lineup. That was actually better than Josh Richardson, who was a minus seven tonight. Although I thought Josh had some, some good moments, particularly one stretch offensively. But I just think until MB gets back in the series, and we're going to talk about that here later in the pod, this is what it's going to be for Hassan. It's going to be sub 20 minutes. I, I just don't see another scenario. I mean, he might have gotten closer to the 20 tonight again if he hadn't picked up the third foul. But I think that Spolstra has just decided that their best lineup has Olinick at the five spot, and he's playing Olinick with Bam for some minutes also. Bam got 10 minutes tonight. They were all with Olinick, and Bam was, was 0 for 4, but he did have five rebounds tonight after having only one rebound in 23 minutes in game one, and he was a plus three, and Olinick played 33 minutes. And, and, that's, and all think, 12 of the fourth, by the way. And all 12 of the fourth, by the way. All 12 of the fourth, and he ended up with 11 points tonight, five rebounds and six assists, and one of those rebounds was a big rebound, did have five turnovers, but he was a plus 11. So this is where Kelly Olynyk's going to be in this series. He's going to be somewhere between 27 and 33, 34 minutes. He's basically playing starting center minutes. And when you look back at this, I mean, we're sort of taking this for granted now, but when they signed Kelly Olynyk to that contract, that contract didn't look so great at the no. time. Right. I mean, there was a big question about why are you giving this kind of money to a guy that Boston basically decided was a reserve at best was someone that they were playing about 16, 17 minutes a game, even in the postseason. And even when Olenek had that great run in game seven against Washington last year where he carried them offensively, that Boston didn't value him. That much. They, they'd sort of seen whatever his upside was and didn't expect that there was going to be much more. And he was sacrificed to make room for Gordon Hayward in particular. But Olenek has been much more than that with Miami. Now, he wasn't great defensively tonight, but again, the ball moves when he's out there. Things don't bog down when he's out there. And so the interesting question will be once Embiid is put back in the series, then how do they play it? Because that's where Olenek may have some difficulty guarding the guy on the other team. But for right now, he's comfortable guarding Ilyasova. Ilyasova, you know, we talked about some of the numbers for Philadelphia's role guys tonight. You know, Ilyasova had a, had a couple of decent moments, but overall uh, was a minus 10 tonight. Again, he was 7 of 10 from the field. He picked it up late a little bit, ended up with 11 rebounds. But I didn't feel he was as impactful as he was in game one. So they were able to survive that. Yeah, and you just kind of saw that the heat in the series, and I think in some respects, Eric Spolster didn't mind the foul trouble, and I think left him out for a little bit, left Whiteside out a little bit longer than you might expect with foul trouble, because he just sort of figured, you know what, I'm going to try and get these minutes as much as I can. The one thing that I think he can do, and maybe he comes out with a lineup change in the next game, or with a quick rotation, why not just match him up when, whenever Amir Johnson is on the floor? Maybe you want to attack Amir Johnson, but he's exactly the kind of player that he can be hidden on, and I feel like at this point, Hassan Whiteside needs to be hidden on the defensive end in this, in this series until Joel Embiid comes back. So that, for me, is the one adjustment still to make. But I feel like in terms of the way that the game went, he's not impactful. He's not what you're getting out of a max player. But at this point, I feel like if you're a Heat fan expecting that, you might be expecting a bit too much. All right, let's move now to the Heat from an offensive point of view outside of Wade and outside of Whiteside. 
It felt like there were at times in that first half where even when they were making that comeback from down and, and Wade was leading the way that it was two and then two. And I'm just so used to now at this point in the modern NBA offense being microwaved that it seemed like the Heat's offense tonight was crockpotting. But it did at the very least pick up in that third quarter. I would say... That third quarter was their best stretch of shot-making and offensive playmaking in this series because the Sixers came out, they adjusted, they scored 33 in the third quarter, they were starting to hit a few threes, Ben Simmons was starting to get rolling a little bit, it seemed like they figured some stuff out in the offensive end, but Miami responded with big shots, and it was everyone, even Tyler Johnson, who didn't make much of a contribution in the game, hit one three in that third quarter that I felt stemmed the tide. There were multiple players who, so far in this series, we haven't had too much in terms of positive things to say about that stepped up and made important shots when Philly was starting to get on a roll. Yeah, and the, the one that I want to highlight here is Josh Richardson because uh, we've been waiting for some aggressiveness for him. And he was one of seven in game one. He missed his first two shots in this game and was not aggressive offensively at all. And then he started to look for his shot, uh, particularly in the third quarter. And he took a couple of shots that you say maybe were not the greatest looks, but I like the aggressiveness from him. They're going to need that because we, we've talked about this a lot too. Since December, and particularly since Dwayne came back in mid-February, he has just not been anywhere near as aggressive as he was earlier in the season. And to, so to get, look, he took 12 shots tonight. That was third on the team behind Wade and, uh, and Dragic, and that's about where Josh Richardson should be, right? He should be second or third on the team in shots. When you look at his efficiency and his ability to make shots from all over the floor, you know, he, he's, a, he's a pretty good driver. He has somewhat of a mid-range game, and we know he can shoot the three, um, and, and he's a good free-throw shooter. So, you know, he should be a guy who should be, you know, attempting somewhere between 11 and 14 shots a game, and for him to only get seven shots in game one was just not enough. So I, I thought his game tonight was much better. Dragic early in the game in particular, before he picked up the two fouls, was very aggressive. I thought he looked much better on the knee tonight. So I don't know mm -hmm. if just the extra day of rest helped him. It also appeared that, that they were able to free. We talked a lot on the pod uh, the other day about Covington and, and how Dragic was just not able to get free from him. I thought Dragic was really crafty at sort of getting more to his spots tonight. I thought some of the cross screens that they were setting for him were freeing him up a little bit. He ended up 8 of 14 from the field. He was a plus 11, finished with 20 points, gave you that second score in addition to Dwayne that you need. And, and again, we, we talk about Dragic and Wade still not being the best fit together in terms of style, but they kind of did it at different times during the game. It was Dragic early, then another stretch, you know, in the third quarter, and then it was Wade in the two two primary stints that Dwayne was on the floor. So so both of them gave them something offensively. And then James Johnson, uh, you know, uh, we, we had this conversation with Ira on the pod where he identified James Johnson as a guy who, when he's good, he's really good. And when he's bad, he's really bad. And we saw both of them tonight. I thought uh, your, your former colleague, Manny Navarro of the Herald, had a great joke where he called him J.J. Bortles because of how often he throws the ball into the stands or away from teammates because he can both be an amazing passer and a dreadful one. Yes, he can, but you look at the final numbers tonight, Chris. 37 minutes led the team, 7 of 7 from the field, 2 of 2 from 3, 2 of 3 from the line, 18 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, 3 steals, and a block. 
Like that that's the kind of box score that they paid him for. Yes. Right. I mean, that's the reason that they gain. Now we can talk about the four years. I made a joke on Twitter that uh, Riley is going to be standing out the locker room <laughs> outside the locker room, ready to hand out four year extensions tonight. I mean, that but that is the kind of game that James Johnson had last year that convinced the Heat to commit to him in a way that no other franchise in the NBA has committed to him. Now, I don't know that they're going to get that game two or three more times in this series, but uh, it was critical to get it from him tonight. So we talk about the starting lineup, how it needed to be better. Um, They got better performances out of three of the five guys tonight they, from James Johnson, Josh Richardson and Goran Dragic. Uh, they got better performances. One other thing I just want to circle back to real quick uh, before we move on, because I, I feel like we haven't given Spolster quite enough credit tonight other than sort of changing the defense. Agreed. Th- this stat came in on Twitter and it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you go back to 2011 consecutive series with a road win. And this is all Spolster time. I know people are going to say LeBron was here for part of this, and I get that. Get that. But 2011 until the present, the Heat have gone 19 consecutive series with a road win. The Warriors are second with 15, the Spurs, Spurs and Cavs and Bulls uh, with 13. That's all time. Um, you know, so so from 2011 until the present, 19 times uh, that the Heat have done that. That's pretty amazing, and that does speak uh, to coaching in large part because again when you're you're on the road in the playoffs it's just you and the team you got to you got to sort of block out all the distractions come up with a game plan that's better and for this franchise LeBron or no LeBron to be able to do that because they did it in uh, they did it uh, w- without LeBron um, in 2015-16 also in both of those series against Charlotte against Toronto uh, it's a pretty remarkable stat. And I would say probably through the first five quarters of this series, he was pretty thoroughly outcoached in terms of Brett Brown had the adjustments, he had the answers, and was able to apply the pressure to Miami. But right at the turn of that first quarter into the second, when the Heat started to go on that run and really had answers from, for Philly from a defensive point of view. And I know, you know, obviously the offense will get some credit as well, but I feel like the way that the Heat were able to mitigate what the what 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 the Sixers movement and what their offense is meant to create the way that he, they were able to disrupt it I thought is a testament to the work that Eric Spoelstra must have done in between games or in timeouts because it looked a lot different than it did in game 1 We'll uh, get to our final – what we're going to do coming up next is we're going to get to what I think will end up being two major talking points heading into game number three. So a little bit of a look ahead. But first, let's hear a word from our Dolphins podcast here on the Five Reasons Network, and that is Three Yards Per Carry. In the latest Three Yards Per Carry, you listen to this type of analysis. He is the most explosive player in this in this draft. He is. You know, you only have to turn on the film to see that. I can have, yeah. No, I mean, come on. He is not just explosive like diarrhea. That's outrageous. And this. Hopefully go. Bo Scarborough has uh, more control over his bowel movements than Najee <laughs> yeah. Davenport. So remember to listen to us every Thursday morning on iTunes, Podbean, and your favorite podcast provider. Great stuff from those guys as the coverage leading into the NFL draft goes on. Do subscribe to the Three Yards Per Carry podcast. Right now, though, we're going to, for our fifth part, we're going to go ahead and look ahead 
in this series to game number three Thursday night at American Airlines Arena. So a couple of days off. And what I imagine will dominate the storylines is two things. For me, the big one is Joel Embiid. Now, Joel Embiid has put something on Instagram tonight. Uh, We're taping this on a Monday night into Tuesday morning, uh, and this will go up overnight. So Joel Embiid has put something on Instagram that I imagine, I I can check again, but will be deleted fairly soon, where he puts on Instagram fucking sick and tired of being babied and so he probably feels like he's ready to go he probably felt like he was ready to go the moment he cleared the concussion protocol but Philly is keeping it cautious maybe they wanted to see if they can win game two without him and certainly the way the game one went they might have thought they had a decent chance to do so but Joel Embiid first off what do you make of the fact that he is now pretty clearly calling out the medical staff and the coaching staff for not letting him play in game number two and obviously if you lose you're going to hear about it from him but secondarily how much does this series change when he returns well, I think it changes a lot. I mean, let's start with <laughs> with the optics of this, right? Because with Joel Embiid, there were a lot of questions over the first couple of years uh, about commitment, right? Like we were hearing about uh, – there were all these strange stories. Like how hurt was he, right? Like why was he not with the team when he was supposed to be with the team? And then he started to play, and everybody forgot about all that stuff because they were like, oh, he's really good. Like there's a reason that they drafted him that high. And look at the skill set that he has. And this is a guy who's going to be a top five, top ten player in the league. So you kind of look past some of the immature stuff that we saw after he entered the league. And again, questions about whether he was going to develop into what they projected. And it's just been sort of funny this year, right? Like it's the stuff on Twitter on, you know, and that he does on social media is all funny. Like nobody really takes it all that seriously. I mean, before the series started, he put that thing out there uh, of him with pictures of the four opponents that implying the four opponents that he was going to beat in the playoffs. Right. You saw that one, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I think it was Miami. And then I feel the like he's one? just an extended member of NBA Twitter, but he actually is an important player in the league. I feel right. like of any major superstar in the NBA, he is most like someone you might follow who's a blogger. Yeah, he just has fun with it. But but you know, and he put it out there that uh, you know what it was him, him with a picture against Miami. I think there was one against Boston, right? Then there was one against Cleveland with him hugging LeBron, and then one uh, with him against Golden State. So I guess this was their projected path to an NBA championship. He didn't need to say much more. Everyone just assumed this is what he meant. So this is part of the Embiid experience. We're going to learn more about this over the next however many years that he's a superstar in the league. But the negative side of that is that again he's going to say what it is that he feels. Right. And so Philadelphia getting a little bit of a taste of that right now. And what's interesting to me is we really haven't heard whispers of him being upset about when he's coming back. Right. Like this was not a controversy in terms of, uh, you know, him. I mean, there was nothing that came out in the press that said he wanted to come back and Philadelphia wasn't allowing him to come back. In fact, you and I were talking about this in the last pod and you were making the point that they should just hold him out until they sort of felt pressured in this series because they may not need him in this series the way that they were playing with the group that was playing so well with Simmons uh, at the trigger and all the shooters around him. So this is really the first whiff of controversy Mm -hmm. with Embiid in a while and the first time that we've gotten a, a sort of an indication that he's been upset about the way that uh, that they've handled this. And this is going to be a storyline for the next couple of days because they don't play again until Thursday. So there are two days in between in the series. And that's one of the things that happens in the playoffs. And from covering so many playoff series, I always experience this is that 
you, the storylines blow up because there's so much time between games. It's not you, it's not like the regular season where you play some back to backs and you don't play as many as you used to, but you still play some. You always have two or three days off, um, and so during that period of time, what may seem like a sp- small storyline gets some legs. And so this is going to be the question that's asked in Philadelphia. How happy is Embiid? Should they be playing him? And so a lot of the controversy that we've been talking about with Whiteside and this so-called distraction that the Heat were dealing with with Whiteside's situation in his minutes, you kind of push that to the side, even though Whiteside only played 15 minutes tonight because they won. And there's going to be more focus on Embiid's situation. Um, And it's going to look a little bit like if Brett Brown uh, puts him back in the lineup now, it's going to look a little bit like either he was pressured by Embiid to do so or he was pressured by the fact that the Heat won game two. With all that being said, I would expect him to be back because the issue was him being cleared for contact, right? And he went through contact and he passed that. So if he's passed the concussion protocol at this point and he's comfortable wearing the mask and he wants to play, I don't see why he wouldn't play in game three now. Right. And I feel like, you know, if he's if he's clear, then he should depending on where they thought he was from the from the facial injury, I guess is probably where he's at. But I was surprised that he had concussion for that long. So I can understand their caution. I think the way that you kind of approach it is from that experience angle, which is I think the thing that a lot of people were saying ahead of the playoffs that this team and particularly their most important players don't have a lot of experience. And I think lashing out when things start to get tough and I'm sure you've been around teams and players that have wanted to lash out when things have gone wrong but you keep it quiet and you figure out a way to solve those things in-house turning to Instagram minutes after the game is not a way that an experienced playoff team handles their issues and yet here's Joel Embiid solving issues this way and I feel like it is the most counterproductive way to go about it and the mark of someone who's yet to really go through important series like this. Yeah, it is. And look, Whiteside was killed, right, for for complaining about his minutes late in the season. And so I expect Embiid's going to hear a little bit of that. And there's going to be some talk about that in Philadelphia. And what you're going to have now is the media in Philadelphia digging into this more, right, and trying to figure out why it is that he wasn't playing sooner if he wanted to play. And the report did come out that he was cleared in terms of contact. And so the question becomes, why wouldn't you put him back out there for game two, other than the fact that you thought you could win with the group that you had as well as it was playing? And we should make the point. They had won 17 straight games, and nine of those games were without Embiid. So mm-hmm. I, not saying that he's not a great player. And they won game one by 27. <laughs> right, and they scored 130. So I, I think when you look at all that, um, you can sort of see the Sixers point, like why push it uh, if he's not 100 percent ready or you don't want to sort of have him go out there with a mask and and get injured again. Um, and, and then, you know, potentially, uh, you know, just you know not be himself for the rest of the playoffs, because that can get in your head a little bit, too, especially, uh, you know, something in the facial area. So I, I, I look, I understand Philadelphia's point of view on it, but it is going to be a bit of an issue now. Now, of course, the, the thing that it affects from a heat perspective is white side, as we've talked about. Um, because the, the whole dynamic of the series changes then. And you talked about trying to hide Whiteside when Amir Johnson's out there. They tried to hide him when Rashawn, jo- uh, Rashawn Holmes was out there, too. Um, I, he played the three minutes that Holmes played tonight. So Spolster was, was trying to sort of pick his spots with Hassan. 
uh, you know, clearly he will give uh, Hassan a little bit more leeway now if Embiid's out there and hope that Whiteside can replicate the performance that he had against Embiid during the regular season. One other point I wanted to make with this, too, which, uh, again, may play into Embiid coming back. If you look at the minutes tonight for Philadelphia, and I talked about how the Heat really distributed their minutes tonight where they had, you know, with five minutes left, they had 10 different guys who played at least 10 minutes and, and nobody played more. James Johnson played 37. Richardson and Olenek played 33. No one else on the team played more than 26. And part of that was Dragic's foul trouble. Um, Wade played 26. You look at Philadelphia's minutes tonight. Brett Brown really only played seven guys. Yep. I mean, he play, he played... Uh, ben Simmons, 30, 39. Covington, who did not have the impact he had in game one, uh, was one of eight from three, played 36. Sarge played 36. Reddick played 36. He wasn't playing well. Bellinelli played 30. Amir Johnson, 22. Ilyasova, 28. Nobody else played more than six. TJ McConnell played six. Fultz only played five. We thought he'd be a bit of an X factor, uh, and he didn't play very much tonight. And then Holmes played three. So he did play 10 guys, but, you know, fundamentally really only played seven um so with mb coming back that fleshes out their rotation a little bit more where you're going to put Ilyasova uh back on the bench it gives you another uh bench scorer amir johnson's uh minutes probably go back down again from the 22 that he played you still get bellinelli a lot of minutes so maybe he you know he plays eight guys uh, more than 15 or 20 minutes in the next game. But but that's one thing that we've seen uh, without Embiid is that they, they were playing a lot of guys. A lot of guys were getting involved. Didn't really happen tonight. He really relied, Brett Brown really relied on just seven. All right, the other thing that I imagine will come up in the run-up to Thursday night's game very quickly here is what happened at the end of the game where Goran Dragic, game's well in hand, and with a second left, uh, he decides to lay in a basket that was totally unnecessary, and you saw the Sixers coach Brett Brown kind of wave his hand, and, and, the, fa- and the fans gave him some stick for it. In terms of the unsportsmanlike nature of it, what do you think uh, will, will end up becoming a conversation around that, or do you think it's kind of a non-story? I think it's a non-story because I think the Embiid story is going to trump it. Sure. I, so I, I, if you didn't have the Embiid story, I think this would be a bigger deal. I mean, it's interesting with Goran because if you ever dealt with Goran, he's like the nicest guy in the world, but he does get under the skin of uh, of other players. I mean, he's had he's had some confrontations over the years, and and not just uh, with uh, with his countrymen. Uh, you remember that with uh, was the Sasha Vucevic um, mm. that he, that he's had some interesting uh, interplay with over the years. Um, but but he's also he he does get under the skin of of players on other teams. Um, I, I don't think he meant anything by that. At the end of the game, again, it's not like he dunked it. I'm mean, not that Dragic is a big dunker anyway, but I mean, he just laid it up at the end of the game. I, I don't think it's a big deal. And again, I think the Embiid thing uh, is going to trump it. So I don't think it's going to be uh, that big a deal. Before we go, there, there was one more moment that's circulating on Twitter as uh, as we close here uh, that, I, that I've been checking out. Did, did you happen to see um, Dwayne and Iverson's uh, interaction at the end of the game? I did not. The- I haven't seen this. Uh, it's pretty cool, and it's it's pretty cool if you know Dwayne's history. So, if you if you go to I, I retweeted it from our account at Five uh, Reason Sports. Um, it's from uh, you should follow this uh, this guy because he puts out a lot of good video at Worldwide Wob mm. at World underscore Wide underscore Wob W O B. Um, <laughs> and it's basically Dwayne makes the jumper. And then he turns around and he death stares Kevin Hart, uh, who's wearing uh, a Philadelphia. 
Jersey. And Dwayne and Kevin Hart have a long relationship that goes way back. Um, but uh, Iverson is standing right next to, uh, to Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart kind of points at him. And then <laughs> Iverson says, uh, you're, you can see him now that you, you a bad MFer. Uh, to Dwayne as, as Dwayne's turning around and making the shot. And what's kind of <laughs> cool about that uh, for me is that Dwayne and Iverson have this long history. The first uh, game that Dwayne ever played in the NBA, and I happened to be there, and was uh, when Stan Van Gundy was the coach and was totally over his head and forgot everything he wanted to say before the game because he was so disheveled. Uh, but Dwayne's first game as a rookie was in that building in Philadelphia against Allen Iverson, both of them wearing the number three. Um, so when you sort of go full circle here and you have Dwayne at the very end of his career, potentially, we don't know if this is going to be his last season, and you have the guy that he opened his career against, somebody that in a lot of ways he emulated, somebody who is considered to be, if you want to call him a two guard, and there's some question about this, uh, one of the best two guards in NBA history, and also along with Dwayne, one of the best players under six foot five in NBA history, um, you know, somebody who played with that kind of aggressiveness and to have it come full circle where you have Iverson sort of bestowing that upon Dwayne as Dwayne makes a shot at age 36 in Iverson's building in Philadelphia. Kind of a cool moment tonight. I thought that was kind of the punctuation on everything. And it is only fitting that we close the podcast talking about Dwayne Wade, given that it was very much his night in Philadelphia at Wells Fargo Center. A ton of fun to watch. And the Heat fan gets to have their moment. That was their moment. You had a regular season one. They thought maybe that was the moment. But playoff Dwayne Wade getting one last go at it. If it is his last go. Maybe if he, we're at this again in 2019, he'll turn in another performance like this. Certainly at this point, you cannot question his credentials in the postseason. And I feel like you know maybe he plays a playoff game age 50. And I'm going to be like, eh, maybe he can still summon <laughs> up an 18-point performance. But Dwayne Wade tonight, very much it is his night. And and he come back home, tied at one with the Philadelphia 76ers, with the Sixers now having the storyline over their heads of Joel Embiid complaining once again for saying he is, quote, fucking sick of being babied. And that is how we will close the podcast. Again, <laughs> check out all the other podcasts on iTunes, on Google Play. Subscribe to this one. Check it out on Live Vote. Follow 5 Reason Sports on Twitter, at the number 5 Reason Sports. All that good stuff. Check out our content. We're back on Friday overnight with a Game 3 recap. What should be a fun one Thursday night. And thankfully for our sake, that one starts a little bit earlier. It's a 7 p.m. tip on Fox Sports Sun or TNT. If you prefer the national broadcast, that'll do it for this edition of the 5 Reasons Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.